transportation has evolved leaps and bounds in the past few years, from ride-sharing to last-mile transportation services like bikes, scooters, and segways. Boosted boards are everywhere, and are an example of exactly what personal transportation is capable of. At a recent Ivy Ideas Night in San Francisco, Boosted Board CEO Jeff Russico discussed the future of transportation regulation within congested cities. At a recent Ivy Ideas Night in San Francisco, Boosted Board CEO Jeff Russico discussed the future of transportation, regulation within congested cities, recent rideshare programs, ownership versus a shared model, and of course, Boosted Boards and their role within the bigger picture of the future of cities. It's a fascinating conversation that you can only hear here on the Ivy Podcast. So, I want to start off by providing a little bit of an introduction uh, of you to, to get the audience acquainted with you. And then we'll give you an opportunity to answer that question for yourself. Sure. Uh, but there are a couple things I wanted to share about Jeff's background that make this conversation incredible. So, he is the CEO of Boosted Boards, and their mission is about transforming last mile transportation to make it faster, easier, simple, and fun. Um, before that, however, early part of his career, he got his PhD from Stanford studying autonomous systems and robotics. Since got away from that career, um, moving on to Boosted, the quote, and we'll dive into this a little bit more because uh, I think this is incredible, was that the world was just not ready for Jeff Rusko's ideas. Now we're here. He has built a reputation as a, a transformational executive and has worked with titan companies like Adobe, Yahoo, and I believe the other one, why, why am I blanking on this? Adobe, SAP, Adobe. SAP, there it is. Yeah, yeah. Beyond that, he's worked as the CEO for three high growth companies and has helped support rapid scaling of, of different functions and companies in different industries. Incredible experience up here to be talking today. But the real question, Jeff, is, is the world now ready for your ideas. Absolutely. <laughs> Are you all ready for Jeff's ideas? All right, all right. perfect. Um, so Jeff, you, you have an incredibly extensive and diverse background, and the story of how you first got involved with Boosted is, has a, a lot of serendipitous intersections about it. Can you share with us why you joined Boosted, and was it love at first sight? Yeah, it was definitely love at first sight, or in my case, uh, a return to my first love. So I started out as a techie. I did a PhD in the early 90s in robotics and autonomous systems, as we mentioned. And I graduated and infamously, infamously told my friends, I'll see you in about 20 to 25 years. Because until batteries get better, and Wi-Fi is streaming fast and everywhere, and computing is faster and, and smaller, and a few other technologies are there, we're just kind of wasting our time because your car or your robot has a cable going to a wall socket and you get about 50 or 100 feet and you're, you're done. And so it, it was just before its time. So I spent a lot of the last 25 years doing uh, more traditional tech things that were happening in the time, software, internet, digital media. And then recently, a little over a year ago, I was introduced to uh, the founders at Boosted and they had dropped out of the exact same PhD program at Stanford that I had finished 23 years ago. Same classes, to this day, some of the same professors. Their thesis advisor uh, was my departmental advisor. So it was really almost meeting a kindred spirit or a brother where one had gone off and spent 25 years getting business experience and the other ones had kind of stayed technical. But it was almost like we picked up at, at mid-sentence really was, for me, just a return to my first love. Uh, and then my kids uh, were very familiar with the company and Casey Neistat. 
And they're like, Dad, you, you have to do this. And I'm like, I can buy you a couple boards. And they're like, no, no Dad, <laughs> you, you, you have to do this. So very cool style points with the kids. That's it. Yeah. What, a, what an incredible support system from, from them to, to inspire wanting to get back into it. Well, and also they love just being involved in the design. Like they come home and they start telling me what kind of things they want to see in the product next. So they've been enjoying it. Quick question. What, what has been the, the feature that they've had the greatest influence on? From the Apple Watch. Wow. The ability to glance at your wrist and see your speed. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so can you give us a little bit of background on Boosted? Like, wh why does Boosted exist, and is it just the Tesla for skateboards? I think, I mean, the, the, the true backstory was that the original founders, uh, while grad students at Stanford, were looking for a better way to, to get around, got tired of walking. And so they started skateboarding, and then they got tired of pushing the skateboard, so they motorized it. And then they got tired of wearing out their shoes stopping, so they put regenerative brakes on it. Uh, and then people started coming up to him saying, hey, where can I get one of those? Because that would really make a difference in my, my day. And so I think that the, the light bulb went off that it's a very cool skateboard, but really what it is is a last mile device. It's just the most efficient way to get around campus because I zip anywhere I want to go and I just kind of throw up my backpack and go into to class. And so I think they realized that they had just sort of stumbled on a mode of transport that in this case happened the, the first product to be a, a skateboard format by just this light electric vehicle that weighs 14 pounds, that's kind of a Tesla for your feet, um, is really what they had kind of stumbled upon. We're gonna dive in a little bit more into the implications around like how that is impacting us, you know, building something as a light electric vehicle and last mile transportation. But one of the things that I wanted to, to touch on a little bit is the relationship that you have with the, the founding team, because I think that we, we oftentimes hear about the transitions of founders stepping out of the CEO role. Uh, we oftentimes hear kind of like when those things go wrong, and you know, you've been in the role for a year now and have, have done an incredible job. So far job. It hasn't gone wrong. Yeah, so far yeah. it hasn't gone wrong. But can you tell us a little bit about, because uh, it's, it's, it's not common for us to hear like the success story of, of this. Um, can, you, can you share a little bit about how you and the, the company and the founders navigated this, this transition? Um, if you have any words of advice to, to people that may be facing a similar decision. Yeah, I think when they go well, which are the ones you hear about less because they're successful, usually it's the founders that initiate the, the, the transition. Um, I mean, the, the classic profile is you have founders that are more of a technical founder, um, and they're very good at uh, initially conceiving of a product and a product market fit and getting a product to, to a certain level of uh, scale or success. And then at that point, um, if things go well, then the company starts growing very, very quickly. And then uh, more of the general management and the business skills and things like that really start to matter more. I think when transitions go well, the founder is actually the one initiating the change. And when they're frequently, uh, when it's the case that they're not going well, the founder is not initiating the change. They're, trying to learn on the job, maybe they're not letting go, uh, maybe the investors are kind of involved in that dialogue. And so, you know, as somebody who comes into a company to kind of take it into a, a next level of growth, the number one criteria you look for is the founders are actually the ones that said, I, I basically want help. Uh, because if they really don't want the help or they're kind of saying that they want help but they don't really want help, it's going to be very, very hard to to bond. And then from there, don't be in a hurry. If you're going to get married basically for the next five to seven years, you really should spend a lot of time, you know, talk for a month or two. Really almost get into a working relationship. You almost need to almost onboard into the job while you're interviewing in both directions to really develop that kind of a bond. And then by the time you actually start, it feels like you already had started. I think when those things go well, you tend to see a very good 
transition when it's more driven out of crisis and maybe has been done less thoughtfully or if the investors are foisting additional help uh, across uh, on the founders. Even if it's merited, it's not always welcomed and that just gets a lot harder. In this case, it was very natural first because, you know, I think for, for uh, uh, John and Sanjay and Matt, you know, they met in me someone that was uniquely, literally them, uh, who had just gone off more in a business direction for, for a couple of decades. And so it wasn't somebody who was like, hey, here's some business guy coming in that may not get our product. I was basically them 20 years later. And, and so it just made for a very natural relationship. That's, that's wonderful. So I don't know if many people realize, but over the last year, Boosted's expanded from two countries to 34, um, which is pretty, that's like, that's probably the definition of rapid growth, I would, I would probably venture. How, what's the reception like internationally? And like, who are these people buying, buying these boards? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'll, the reception, well, first, we, we were in US and Canada until last summer. We've now expanded to all of uh, EU and ANZ, and then tier one, I guess, Asia locations and Latin America coming next in the, the back half of this year. Uh, we grew between four and five hundred percent last year, so that is definitely paint peeling hot uh, growth. Um, uh, in terms of the reception, we've really just been following the demand. What was really interesting to me when it came into the company is, with zero marketing and really no way outside of the U.S. or Canada to get the product, one third of our sales were basically from somewhere else. And you started to see examples of people bootlegging products for seven thousand dollars in in Singapore. So it, it wasn't very hard to go into a new country and see what kind of reception you had, we, we actually did the opposite. We already looked where we had tremendous reception and just tried to find a way to more efficiently get products shipping to those, uh, to those countries. Uh, and we're going to continue to have to do that with, with these other countries as well. Absolutely. In terms of who rides it, sorry, the second part of your question, the thing that really struck me is everybody. Um, I was very concerned that this was just a bunch of tech bros living in Brooklyn and San Francisco. <laughs> and kind of very niche little market, and, and that was kind of it. And so one of the nerdy things I did when I was interviewing for the job is I took a sample of 10,000 uh, board orders to see where the people lived. And it was 3,800 different cities and towns, uh, which blew me away. And then when I further said, okay, how many of these are just major metros, because you got suburbs, you know, so metro New York, metro Atlanta, about 40% really did over-index on kind of top 25 metropolitan areas, you know, in the U.S., London, et cetera. The other 60% was just kind of anywhere, 11 people in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It just, and what I realized from that is everyone takes short trips. Um, and the other thing that really struck me was that the age span was 18 to 50. Um, it was not just sort of people 18 to 24. And um, over 80% of uh, the riders self-identified that they use this as part of their daily commute. Uh, and so their number one use case was commuting. And their second most common reason for having the board uh, was running errands. And having fun was actually distant third. And I realized it's like it's a very fun product, but it's kind of like getting a sports car. It may be very fun, but you're still buying the car to go to work or to get around. You just want to have a fun one. Um, and that really uh, struck me that this was actually something where people were really buying it to use it every day. Uh, and that's basically what we found is most people use it every day. Absolutely. So, you know, we talk about four to five hundred percent growth, like that's, that's rapid scaling. Um, I feel like that, that has to be correlated to the significance of the problem that's, that's being solved for, for people. Um, so I'd love to transition a little bit more into um, like the problem being around transportation. Um, so like what are, 
what are the current trends that you're seeing right now, like how people live, how people move? What's going on right now in the world that you see? Yeah, I think there's, there's a, a challenge that comes up every generation. Every generation really needs to figure out how to reinvent uh, transportation, particularly last mile transportation. And that's because with every generation, um, urban density is getting higher and per capita incomes are coming up. And so the cities are getting taller and taller and, and taller. 54% uh, of the human race uh, lives in an urban environment uh, today. And after decades of going down with suburban sprawl, it's actually now going rapidly the other way. And per capita incomes are also coming up very rapidly. And so countries that maybe were on the bicycle 10 years ago are, are now in automobiles as, as well. Um, and so what's happening is essentially gridlock. Um, and so for most people, what they're finding at this point is the automobile or a vehicle of that size is pretty much broken down uh, in terms of its uh, reasonableness. Half of all car trips are less than three miles. Um, so the idea of half of your trips, you're in a 3,500 pound beast that's 15 feet long that you have to go get, be stuck in traffic, moving very slowly amongst other large vehicles, and then having to go find parking. When it's like a, a one, two, three mile trip, I think it's just really become incredibly uh, cumbersome, and it, it's not making sense. Um, there's been a lot of excitement about the electric car, uh, as there should be, uh, but all you're really doing is making the traffic jam cleaner. You're, you're still in a 5,500 now instead of a 3,500-pound vehicle, and you still have the getting and the traffic and, and, the, and, and the parking. Uh, and so you're still kind of losing 40 minutes a day just sort of being stuck in, in, in gridlock. Um, so then along came um, ride-sharing. And so when I think of ride-sharing, I initially think of taxi for, the, for many decades, and then more recently, you know, Uber and Lyft, which I think of as taxi 2.0, and it, it's a little more efficient. Um, and there's been some benefit to that in that uh, many times you do uh, reduce the time to get a ride, um, and you've eliminated the need to park, which is a huge time savings. Um, but then the middle part, the traffic, is actually getting uh, rapidly worse because as it's getting mass adoption, um, there's just a ridiculously large number of vehicles running around on empty waiting for a passenger and need to be available within two or three minutes. So now a very significant portion of the um, total cars on the street are actually uh, cars empty of a, of a passenger. And, and the right-hand side of every avenue is now becoming sort of this loading, unloading, mating ritual zone as everyone's trying, trying to find their, their, their driver. And is that you? Um, and, and so, are you here for Patrick? Yeah. And so, um, and, and so it, it's broken down in cities. Um, it's broken down in dense suburbia. Um, it's broken down in campuses where there was even uh, roadways uh, uh, to begin with. And people are just saying, this just doesn't, just doesn't work. Um, and so what we're seeing now is people are saying, well, maybe it's the vehicle itself. And the problem is the vehicle is too darn big. And <coughs> it doesn't make sense for such a short uh, trip. Um, and so when you ask most people, hey, look, forget about what it is. What do you want? What do you want to have, if you could have anything? What they're really describing is something that has the following attributes. I, I want something that has no size, no weight, is electric, so I don't have to do any work, charges instantly. Um, and I want it to be instant. The minute I go out the door, I go. There's no going to a bus stop. There's no hailing or waiting or for something to show up. I just go. And the minute I get there, I'm there, and I go up the elevator. There's no parking or storing. So trip time equals transit time. And oh, by the way, I want this thing to be so small or slender, there's no traffic. And I just zip on 
zip on through and I can get across San Francisco in five minutes. Um, I want it to be intermodal or multimodal, meaning works well with other forms of transportation. So maybe I take Caltrain into the city or I take New Jersey Transit into Penn Station in New York and now I want this thing to magically take me 20 blocks to my office. But then tonight I'm going out to dinner with my friends and I want to grab an Uber so I want this thing to disappear into my bag or purse uh, and just sort of go away. Um, I want it to be an actual vehicle, not a toy. And by that I mean I want the acceleration and deceleration to be vehicle or street grade. If I'm going to be out in traffic in front of 3,000 pound cars, I don't want to get hurt. So this thing has to have enough, it needs to be a real vehicle um, in terms of, of its performance. I wouldn't take a rental car off the lot that had sketchy brakes. Um, it needs to be durable and go for thousands of miles a year, maintenance free of course, cost nothing. Uh, be pennies of miles to operate, um, and it needs to be fun. And most importantly, I do not want to look like a dork. That is the number one criteria. Um, and so what, what basically what they're describing, I mean, that's a very long list, but what they're really describing is some kind of light electric vehicle, something that weighs less than 20 pounds, that really is pretty much stashable, whether it be a skateboard or a scooter or some kind of ultralight bike or a Vespa that weighs less than 20 pounds somehow, or a wheelchair, what they're basically saying is I just want some kind of a light uh, electric vehicle that's sub a thousand bucks, maybe sub 500 bucks, that's that small. And, and if I can have that, then that really meets most of my needs. And so what's been interesting is we finally reached that age that I didn't see 23 years ago where we got there. And ironically, it's the first mobile revolution, the phone mobile revolution, that got us there because that was the trillions of dollars of investment that eventually drove the batteries to be so good um, and the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth and everything else that we now live in an age where a three pound battery not much bigger than my fist can propel a 250 pound person at 25 miles an hour up a San Francisco hill and go flying down the other side and stop on a dime with complete confidence. That's just an incredible evolution of, of technology and be able to be something that's very, very cost effective a few hundred bucks. And so we finally got to that point where that light electric vehicle can actually be a street quality vehicle um, that everyone can access. So kind of a long progression, but um, I think what everyone's basically saying is I'm just tired of gridlock and I need something small and personal and light and a light electric vehicle of some form really meets my needs. You've mentioned tonight a couple different product solutions, be it scooters, wheelchairs, skateboards, all of the above. But there's also like a difference in, in model and how people engage with, with that particular product. Where, where's Cini at? Cini? He, he showed up in his, uh, his own personal light electric vehicle today, which was, which was really cool. But so like people are engaging with these things. Like who's seen the, the scooters? Who's ridden one? Pretty thrilling experience. But so like there's a lot of things go, going out there. Give us a little bit of a better understanding of the solutions and then like the pros and cons or the implications that those have on the urban landscape or on the consumer itself. Yep. So I'm now intrigued to find out what kind of vehicle was it seen, seen uh, came in. And yeah, I think first thing I'd say is right now, most of the electric vehicles that people are putting out, and certainly we are, follow some convention of thing people are familiar with. If you come up with some animal that's just so far out there that people don't know what it is, the adoption tends to be lower. And so it's only natural that um, initially you'll see like skateboard or scooter or bike or things, because people are already very familiar with those form factors, and they already know how to ride them. Um, and so um, that's just a natural wave. And then uh, eventually over time, started to say, let me solve this from square one with a blank sheet of paper. You might come up with something that might be a little bit more esoteric. Um, 
within the form factors that I think we're most commonly seeing today, <coughs> excuse me, the, the skateboard and the scooter form factor tend to be very much a last mile vehicle. You now have something that's extremely portable. So skateboard, you know, literally can fit into a backpack uh, or tuck under an arm. Um, uh, the, the scooters, at least some of the lighter ones, especially with a foldable handle, this is something that really makes a lot of sense if you're going one, two, three, four miles, um, and it's small enough you can throw it under a desk and, and take it inside. You're not really thinking about storage. Um, when you get to something about the size of a bike, um, I tend to think of a bicycle more as a workhorse or a suburban workhorse. I'm going seven, 12 miles. Maybe I've got a little more payload, some groceries, a, a big bag. Um, and it, it might be worth the trade-off that I'm married to this you know, vehicle frame, because now it is a little bit more of an effort to, to haul inside or, or store outside. And so I think um, that tends to be a different use case. It's more of a workhorse uh, kind, of a, um, kind of a use case. So I think the, the shared model has been receiving a lot of, a lot of attention in the, the news nowadays. I'm sure you all have probably seen the billion dollar valuations, the acquisitions, the uh, discussions and debates around policy and how policymakers are uh, regulating and legislating around these things. Um, so I want to first talk about policy a little bit. Yeah. What do you, what do you think are the essential factors that local policymakers should be considering when they're evaluating how to deal with this new form of, of transportation or this more highly adopted form yep. of electric vehicles? Do you want me to handle share, not share, and then policy, or go policy first? Whichever you prefer. Okay. Take um, us, this is your journey, Jeff. Sure, so. sure, sure. So um, I, think, I think what's most exciting to me right now is clearly there's a very large number of companies innovating and trying to find a lot of different ways to put light electric vehicles on the street, whether it be owned or shared or subscribed. Um, I think the thing that I'm excited about is everyone seems to have gotten to the point where they're like, hey, last mile transportation equals some kind of a smaller, lighter electric vehicle. And that's not really a debate. Even a year ago, you're starting to show people pictures of a scooter, and they're like, that's dorky. No one will ever ride that thing. And so, um, so I, I think what's great is um, there's a lot of different ways that people are putting a lot of vehicles on the street for people to try and say, hey, this actually really makes a difference in my day. I'm saving 40 minutes uh, looking for parking. I'm saving 100 bucks a month. And so I, I think in that regard, that is good. I think the thing that people are less clear about is what will be the, the business or the, the ownership model? Will people want to own these things, whether it be own, finance, or subscribe? Or will they want to share? Um, and I think the, the quick answer is yes and yes. Just like if you look at the automobile, um, we are definitely seeing more and more adoption of rideshare, Uber, Lyft, et cetera. But the vast majority of vehicles are still owned. And the reason why is when you look at most people's transportation needs, it tends to fall into a couple of buckets. One is what I call ad hoc travel. Think about when you grab an Uber or Lyft or a taxi today. Hey, we're going to a bar, hitting a restaurant. I already parked my car in the high rise, and I need to go a meeting across town, and I want to move my car. That's an ad hoc trip. And for that trip, I am perfectly happy to pay four, five, six dollars a mile um, for that transportation and not have to deal with my vehicle when I'm going into the restaurant or the, the bar. Um, on the other hand, if I'm commuting, right, or if I'm running routine errands, I don't want to be paying four, five, six dollars a mile. And it's something I'm doing every day. So I want to know that vehicle is available when I need it at eight, you know, eight a.m. every morning. And so what you tend to see is people have more of a proclivity towards 
having their own vehicle uh, for things that are routine like commute and, and routine errands. Um, and then they have a greater proclivity towards ad hoc or rideshare uh, for those kind of trips. And so just as they own a car and also use Uber uh, or Lyft uh, or taxi, I think that we'll continue to see there'll always be some, some mix of people uh, in terms of ownership and, and share, and that it kind of breaks out that way. Um, from a public policy point of view, I think the thing that's gotten a lot of attention was, has been because um, some of the rideshare companies have gone out in, in something of a, a provocative manner to just try and kind of drive you know, the, the dialogue about uh, um, how to store these things as well as to drive adoption. Um, that's gotten, uh, it's been a lightning rod uh, for public policy debates, specifically about where these things are stored. Because the difference between when you own a vehicle and when you share a vehicle is if you own the vehicle, you just take it inside and throw it under a desk and charge it. And so this whole where do you put it is really only an artifact of the share model where the vehicle is left outside between rides and, and therefore they're kind of, you know, if there's a lot of them, it's starting to clutter up sidewalks, block pedestrian walkways, all kinds of, of issues. Um, but if I were to broaden it, I, I think there's actually three different buckets of public policy that people need to think about, which I'll simplify as vehicle in motion, vehicle at rest, and the vehicle itself. And so by vehicle at motion, in motion, Vehicle in motion, what I mean is speed limit and rules of the road. Should this thing be on the sidewalk? Should it be in the, the bike lane? Should it be on the road? Should you be wearing a helmet? How old should you be? Should you have a license? Things like that. Um, right now, uh, the 49 out of the 50 states in the US have no laws in the books whatsoever about how to regulate these things. California is the really? only one. 49 out of 50? Yeah, and most sovereignties around the world have nothing as well. So uh, California did pass a state law in 2016 which I think is a great common sense template. Uh, so in the case of the skateboard, uh, 20 mile an hour speed limit um, in the bike lane or on roads where the posted speed limit is 35 miles an hour or less, uh, 16 years or older to ride um, and wear a helmet. Do not need a driver's license to, to do so. Seems pretty common sense to me. Uh, and scooter's a little different. You have to have um, a license because it's being classed as a motorcycle. But otherwise, the rules are, are very similar. Um, and so I do think there's a need um, for people to clarify across all different municipalities and sovereignties what are the rules of the road so people know what they should and shouldn't be doing. Uh, my personal view is if you're doing 20-something miles an hour, you should not be on the sidewalk. If you're Usain Bolt and you can run that fast, you should not be on the sidewalk. Um, and so I think there's a need to just say slow should maybe be on the sidewalk, medium should be in the bike lane, medium and fast should be on the road. Um, there's a second bucket, which is more this vehicle at rest, and so um, where to store them. And um, I do think it's unfortunate that some players have been more provocative in terms of trying to force the, the issue, because I do think there's some very simple solutions. Um, here's the thing that we're all blind to. We notice four, five, six scooters or bikes out, and we're like, man, urban blight. What we completely don't see anymore is that the side of every single street it's just got lined with cars. There's 60, 70 cars on every single block everywhere in the world. And so we've already allocated 44% of our cities to streets and parking garages. And we've already accepted that anytime I'm looking at some nice buildings or facades, there's 20 cars right in the row. If you just took one car, one parking spot off of each street and took out a can of paint and whatever color we want to designate, just basically put a little 
paint rectangle down with a little sand grit, you can probably park 30 or 40 light electric vehicles. So you could very easily solve the, the urban bike problem of, of getting more people on either powered or just regular bikes just by literally just taking one parking lot, a parking spot for a car off of uh, every street and cost you paint. So I, I think it's a, a false, a red herring about uh, urban blight and, and these things. There are ways to solve it that are very orderly that I, I think are, are common sense. Um, and then the last thing, and this is the thing that concerns me the most and concerns Boosted the most, is the vehicle itself. One of the concerns I have right now is, particularly with a lot of the rush towards rideshare uh, models, um, the vehicles that people are putting on the street now uh, are a toy. And, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful or um, critical way. Um, if you look at the, the scooters that they're putting out and read the manual, if you buy one, because you can buy these on Amazon for about 480 bucks, it's considered a leisure grade toy. It's designed for about 100 days of, of life. Uh, the battery's good for about 200 charges. And so it's not really meant to be a street grade vehicle that has the acceleration or the deceleration that you should have. It doesn't necessarily have the reliability that isn't going to fall apart. And so um, the scooters or vehicles that we're seeing people put out right now, they last about 80 to 100 days. And they're having to put out four or five a year to have one contiguously on the street. The only thing right now that these things need to pass from a safety point of view is a UL certification like it's a desk lamp. Basically, it will not set fire. But there's no vehicle, there's no vehicle standards for the vehicle. And so imagine going into a rental car lot to take a car off the lot, and there's no standards for whether or not that vehicle is street-worthy. Forget about whether it's a Porsche or a, the economy compact car. Is it safe to go out on the street? And so I think the thing that uh, we take great pride in at, at, at Boosted is the vehicles we make are vehicle grade. Right? We slam them 13,000 times at 200 Gs. We throw them in water. We do all kinds of insanely torturous things to them. But we basically go through automotive uh, levels of, of rigor. And that's why we're so known as having a vehicle that is really a vehicle with the build quality and the safety of, of a vehicle. And that's why our incident rate is, is so low and, and why people find that they last for years and years and years. So I, I do think that some more attention needs to be paid to whether or not we're putting people in harm's way on a toy versus putting them on the street on a light vehicle. And we need to pay more attention to that. If it can't make it up a hill, if it can't stop taking you down a hill, should you be in traffic on that? And so I, I think that's something that um, I, I think people need to pay a little more attention to before there are some incidents or more incidents. Absolutely. Yeah. Two flippant comments to, to make afterwards. I've been the person down the hill and I've hit a car. Yeah. Um, so that's, that was me. Yeah. Um, but the other one is also, too, do you get a chance to, to communicate this like common sense policy addressing to, to legislators? Like, do you, do you have that opportunity often? Because I'm like, this just makes so much sense. I'm like, that's perfect. Uh, we, we do or increasingly do now. I think um, the reality is until somewhat recently, the number of vehicles um, we were all putting out on the street was still a small enough number. It just was not bubbling up uh, as one of the top 10 things that a, um, a city official needed to, to think about. Um, I think with the proliferation of vehicles that's happening now, um, where you know, you're in New York City and you're literally seeing two, 3,000 boosted boards going by and a couple hundred scooters going by, um, and then you know, with some of the more provocative approach of some players more recently, it is forcing city officials to actually start to um, think about it. Um, I think um, we've had 
in the case of Boosted, a lot of interest from other countries and transportation authorities as they're trying to figure out how to maximize the use of mass transit. Uh, probably the biggest disincentive to using mass transit is the first and last mile. I still need to get from my house to the train, and I still need to get from the train to the office. And so the primary reason why people choose to take the car anyway is not the 30 miles in the middle, it's the first and the last mile. And so if you have something that's not the size of a bike, which is a pain in the butt to haul onto Caltrain, but if you have something that literally can tuck between your knees or into a bag, then that's extremely interesting to um, uh, public uh, officials. And so um, we've started to see a lot of interest from transportation ministries and municipal uh, authorities because of that uh, part of the puzzle. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so policy, policy provides the, the framework for a lot of these things to, to operate in. Mm -hmm. But the, the other side is the, the investment side, the, the financial side that fuels these companies in existence, the innovations, the batteries, all these things. Um, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your take on what's going on in the investment side of these types of companies and products. And I guess also, too, like are there, are there opportunities that we're missing or not seeing on the investment side for these types of innovations? Yeah, I mean, um, clearly, for anyone who's been following the, the press at all, there's just been nothing short of a, an investment frenzy uh, around last mile transportation. Um, and you know, we've all seen statistics where the investment in scooter mania, as it's called, is even more aggressive and fast than uh, we saw with Uber and, and with Lyft. I think um, the one thing I would point out is that most of the investment is very oriented towards, uh, here in the US in particular, is very oriented towards uh, software and business models, and really much less so at the vehicles uh, themselves. So if you actually look at all the press you're reading, it's people who are buying somebody else's vehicles and they're really focused on a business model, like share, um, or they're trying to do AI or intelligence around autonomous vehicles. But if you actually look at most of the companies that actually make the vehicles, you'll find that, um, uh, at least in the US, we really tend to underinvest in the vehicle technologies. I can go to China and see billions of dollars a year going into electric vehicles. Um, you will not see billions of dollars going here. So I do think one of the things that might be something we need to think about as an investment community is um, whether or not we actually have enough of a balance of our investment in actual, the, the actual products themselves uh, and the infrastructure itself uh, as opposed to only the business models and the, you know, kind of uh, some of the arbitrage models that try and sit um, over them. And so that's something that if we want to make sure we, we are investing in things that have sustainable value, we should be thinking about further. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I have one more question before we break off to, to Q&A. So the, the burning topics on, on your head, um, get ready to, to ask them. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to, to close with is um, right now, like you mentioned like you're, Boosted is a great example of the rapid scaling um, of these types of, of light electric vehicles. What, if, if these adoption trends continue and the, the implementation of these different models continue, what is the impact that happens for, for us, for our future city? What does that like future city look like from the impact of these types yeah. of programs? I'm going to answer that in a couple ways, which is because to some degree we're in one of those moments of inflection in the future right now uh, and then longer term. Um, the thing that's been interesting to me about people as they're uh, discovering light electric vehicles in one form or another is um, 
just like the mobile revolution and the phone kind of was a major impact to your day, um, this next you know, level of innovation in this mobile revolution, a physical mobile revolution, is uh, perhaps uh, next as profound. So you heard it in the video where fellow, one of the fellows was saying, I spend two to $300 a month. He says an Uber, Lyft, and um, a subway, but basically last mile. And it takes me longer to get to work. And now if I use this thing, I'm getting there faster. And so we're seeing people say, I'm getting 40 minutes more out of my day savings. And I may be saving $100, $150, $200 a month out of my pocket. And if I'm you know, a student on campus, or if I'm making 40 or 80 grand a year, which is the vast majority of people, that's, that's significantly profound impact on, on their day. So we're seeing people say, hey, this is actually a very practical thing that's making a difference in my, my existence. Uh, the second thing is um, it's good for the earth. It's every person that's on one of these vehicles is, is one more car that's off the road, that much less carbon footprint, and you literally can't start to measure you know, the, the impact of that. Uh, and then the third thing, which is a little bit more of a, a soft you know, thing that's harder to measure is there is a little bit of a warm afterglow uh, when people start to get onto light vehicles. Uh, when you're in a car, you're in a cocoon, you're kind of bubbled off from the city you're passing through, listening to your music. Uh, and as we all know, the minute you get out of the car on any type of light vehicle, powered or not, bicycle, walking, you get a lot more interactive with your city, you get a lot more interactive with the businesses around you, you get a lot more interactive with your fellow commuters. Um, so it's fun, and, and people get a lot more um, so I think it's having a profound impact right now. In terms of the future, you know, kind of thinking a little further out, um, I'm a little bit of a pragmatist. Um, we, we, we like to think about, you know, in our imagination, the Jetsons and, and the flying car um, and or tunneling under the cities. And, you know, hey, it is possible that some of these things may come to pass even if it's in 20 or 30 years. But by and large, they don't solve the last mile problem. If I'm in a 5,000-pound flying car, I still need to park it. I eventually am going to end up on 3rd Street waiting in line to get into some kind of a, a parking garage. And so if you really think about um, the, the thing that's actually um, probably most important is vehicles getting smaller and smaller, cheaper and cheaper, more and more personal, and, and more stowable, um, I, I think is actually the trend that um, is more likely to happen as a result of increasing urban density as opposed to vehicles that are getting larger and larger and more energy intensive um, and impressive. And if it's Tony Stark, hey, that's great. You have some way to fly to the top of that skyscraper and have a valet kind of take you down. But for the other 99.9% .9 of us, it's probably going the other way. Uh, smaller, less is more, um, and, and something that just uh, makes more sense. And so I think the future transportation is smaller and less, not more. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.